Uh, every year at King's College in London on Christmas Eve, there's a service entitled The Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols. And in this service, there's scripture readings from Genesis all the way to Revelation telling the Christian story. The service is so popular that they live broadcast it on the BBC and normally have about three million people watch it. Well, the service begins with a soloist singing Once in David's City. However, the soloist doesn't know they're going to sing it until right before the service. The thinking is if we tell them in advance, they'll be nervous. So instead, we'll just make everyone nervous that it might be them until the service begins. Well, what if this morning, if it wasn't me, but Keith said, you know, once we get to the sermon time, I'm going to call on one of y'all. And you come forward and share what the story of Christmas is about. Now, the public speaking would probably scare some people. So what if it was instead, tonight, you have a five-year-old and you need to sit down and explain what the story of Christmas is about? What would you tell them? Why did Jesus come? Who is Jesus? Where was he born? All of these questions. Well, Keith read the passage and he even mentioned most Americans know the story. You just have to watch the Charlie Brown Christmas special and you can have it read for you. You don't even have to be a Christian and you probably know the story from Luke 2. But why did Jesus come? When was he born? All these questions. We're going to look at seven questions this morning. And I hope by God's grace, if you can't now, by the end of the service, you could explain even to a child what is Christmas all about We'll begin by answering the question, when was the birth? Look down at verses 1 and 2 of Luke chapter 2. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, due to the census, Joseph traveled down to Bethlehem to be med- registered, and Mary comes with him. Then verse 6 says, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Thus, Jesus was born during this Roman census. However, which Roman census? Well, the answer is we really don't know. Broadly, as you read historians, somewhere between 6 B.C. and 6 A.D. And in fact, as for the day, Christians didn't really begin to discuss this until around the year 200 And when they did begin to discuss what day was Jesus born, some people said May 20th. Some said April 19th or 20th. Some said March 25th. Still others, January 6th. And of course, some said December 25th. The first time it seems mostly settled that Christians would celebrate on December 25th is not until 345 A.D. And I say mostly settled because you may know that Christians till today, some celebrate Christmas on January 6th. Now, I don't really think it matters if Jesus was born on December 25th or January 6th or April 19th or July 4th, because the fact is that he was born, not the exact day and year in which he was born. What matters is that he was born. But let's answer another question. Where was his birth? As noted, Joseph, being of the tribe of David, had come down to Bethlehem, the city of David. Now, amazingly, Caesar Augustus called this census because he wanted to increase his tax revenue. But God called this census because he wanted his son to be born in Bethlehem. To fulfill the prophecy of Micah 5, 2 that says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me 
one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is a from old, from ancient of days. Now you might have been thinking, if you read Matthew 1, well this is a problem because Joseph is from Nazareth, and Jesus needs to be born in Bethlehem. How is this going to be taken care of? Well, it's no problem for God. He just moves the heart of Caesar Augustus to call a census and get Joseph down there. You know, friends, we can take great comfort in this, that no matter your circumstances or the event in your life, God controls all. Now, we don't have as many Air Force people here, but we often do. And the Air Force people can know that it's not some random person down at Randolph that decides their next PCS. God is the one who does that. Or for many of us who are civilians, we think we have chosen to live in Wichita Falls. And we have, yet Acts 17.26 also said, says, God has determined the allotted periods and boundaries of our dwelling. You know, God oversees all, and so he had his son be born in Bethlehem to do this in line with his ancestor David. And so God moves Joseph through the edict of a Roman Empire. And yet, where in Bethlehem was Jesus born? Well, in the second century, the Christian teacher Justin Martyr gave a specific location where Jesus was born. And in 326, the church of the nativity was built upon that place. You can still go to that church in Bethlehem today. Yet, while that might be the place, Luke does not provide us with any details like that. In fact, he merely states where Jesus was not born. Look at verses 6 and 7. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. At that time, while there were some public shelters you could sleep in, in general, it was expected that people would welcome you into their home. There was no Hilton, Marriott, or Hotel 6 leaving the light on for them. So where was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Was it a wooden stable? That's what's often depicted. Was it a cave where animals stayed? Some people say that. Was it actually the main floor of a house and the residents lived on the second floor? Some people say that. Or is it actually one of those where the church of the nativity is? And the answer is, we don't know. And again, that doesn't really matter. But the thing that matters here is the sad reality that no man gave up his space for the king of kings. You know, this was a pregnant teen but not just any teen this was part of their family you know joseph and mary hadn't stopped at some wayside town that they didn't really know anyone this was a government ordered family reunion everyone there is of the line and tribe of david everyone's cousins and not a single one of them said you know that family that's pregnant and just gave birth why don't we go sleep where they are and they come in here and so the long-awaited son of David has come, and his family shuns him, and he gets enthroned in a feeding trough. Thus, into an impoverished and humbling situation, Jesus is born. But notice again verse 1 how it begins. Verse 1, Jesus' birth did not begin with once upon a time, but in those days. In other words, Jesus' birth is history. Not merely a good story or a myth. And it's not only in this intro of Luke 2, but it's at least 
three other things show that this is intended for us to be understood as really true. First, Luke gives us specific events, a census. Specific people, Quirinius, Caesar Augustus, and specific places, Bethlehem. And these specifics allowed the people of that time to confirm the reality of them. Second, the shepherds are told to go and see a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. You know, this is not Greek mythology. If you know Greek mythology, when Athena was born, she came out fully clothed out of the head of her father Zeus. Well, that's a good myth, but that's not reality. This is being presented as a normal birth. Yes, the conception of Jesus was miraculous, but after that, he lived a normal human life. And third, flip back to the beginning of Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 1. I'm going to read the first four verses. So Luke chapter 1, the first four verses, and it reads, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word that has been delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So Luke specifically writes this story so that Theophilus and us can have certainty about this. You know, there comes a point where every single person needs to say, not only is this what I come to, but that I actually believe Christianity is true. No, children, you often don't have a choice. You're brought to church, and yet at some point, you need to say, well, yes, this is what mom and dad believe, but do I actually believe this is the truth? And adults, maybe you've come for decades, and you've never actually sat down and thought, is this really true? Not, is this helpful for me? Not, is this what gets me through life? But did Jesus, the Son of God, truly come in the flesh. Here, we're being told that in a real time, the first census of Quirinius, in a real space, Bethlehem, God sent his one and only son in the flesh. It can be, we really be certain of truth? You know, many today will claim, if you say you're certain, if you claim that's true, then that's dangerous. In college, one of my professors had us read his own textbook, and in it it said, the world has seen far too many tragedies result from a belief that one person, one race, one religion, one culture, one sacred book, or historical interpretation is universally true. Yet, ironically, while people express that we can have no certainty about universal claims, they express that as a certain universal fact. They believe this to be an undeniable and certain fact, that we can't have certainty. And you're probably here and there, the irony, the philosophical maneuvering that's like a magician's sleight of hand that says, you can't say anything certain, except that that is certain. You know, they say you can't do what they do at the very moment. And yet God not only sent his son in the flesh, he has given us a clear and certain message that we may know that he was born as a babe in Bethlehem. And that then leads us to asking, how is this birth announced? Look at verses 8 and 9. It tells us, And in the same region, 
There are shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. You know, Christians, we often either romanticize the role of a shepherd, or we villainize the role of a shepherd. Now, Israel had a great history of shepherds. King David was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. God himself is called my shepherd. And yet, in that time and culture, shepherds were not thought of very well. They're described as honest. And some rabbis wrote that shepherds should not be allowed to be eyewitnesses in court. Shepherds were not part of the important and powerful in their society. Rather, they were the lowly and insignificant. And yet God made his first announcement to humble shepherds. And when the angel appeared to the shepherds and the glory of God shone around them, the shepherds were filled with great fear. But notice what the angel says in verse 10 through 12. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The shepherds then immediately go and verify this angelic announcement. And notice verse 17. And when they saw it, the baby, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Now we wouldn't say this in church because we know it would be sacrilegious. But maybe some of us are wondering, was this really the best marketing strategy? I mean, here's the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and you're going to announce it to some shepherds? You mean, why not Caesar? Why not have a high priest there who can verify how important and the reality of who Jesus is? As well, we already noted, God controls all our time and place in which we live. Why was Jesus born then? Why not the 21st century when cameras could be there? It could be captured. Joseph could live feed this. And then afterwards, he could tweet out an announcement of the Savior's birth. Why not have the media gathered around the dignitaries so that it could be told to all the world? Or for their day, why not horses ready to ride throughout the kingdom, trumpeteers to say, the king has come? Why are Lowly despised shepherds, the recipients of the world's most important news. Well, it's because God delights to pour his favor upon the lowly. He did not choose to have Jesus be born into a rich and prominent family, but rather a man and woman who later in this chapter, Luke 2, will have to pay the poor tax in the temple because that's all they can afford. God's son will be born to a couple that lives in an out-of-way town, in an out-of-the-way city, and the announcement will be to those on the edges of the society. You know, from the beginning of Jesus' life to the end of his life, he'll surround himself with people that the world does not think befit a king. You know, Jesus is described as a friend of sinners, and his death will have him between two robbers. Yet he is the king who came to save those in need of help, not those who have their life altogether. He came to the poor, the needy, and the broken. And what good news to people like us in Wichita Falls, Texas. You know, we're not 
the rich, the famous, or the impressive. I didn't notice any paparazzi following on anyone as they came in this morning. I don't believe any of us are getting calls. Hey, can you give us your opinion on this major thing that's happened? You know, people around us aren't trying to be close to us because we have so much wealth and they really want to know us so they can go to our beach house or enjoy all the things that we have. Yet God doesn't care about all that. Notice what God declares in Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is contrite and lowly of spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And even by the announcement of Jesus into the world, God was showing us that he comes for the humble and the lowly, not the proud and exalted. You know, what matters is not only that he was born, but we also need to consider who is born. So who is born? We see this in verse 11. So look down again at Luke chapter 2, verse 11, where it reads, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. We're given three descriptions of who is born. First, we're told the baby is a Savior. And yet that immediately makes us ask, well, saved from what? Saved from financial ruin? Saved from sickness and death? Saved from Roman imperialism? Well, in Matthew 1.21, the angel told Joseph the answer by saying, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We must be saved from our sins, and Jesus came to do that. You know, sin isn't a popular word or concept anymore. We're told we're not sinners, we're uneducated, or we're underprivileged, or we had bad parents, or we have chemical imbalances. And while all of those merit some understanding to why we do what we do and who we are, the root cause and problem of our life is our sin. You may be familiar with the story in Mark 2 where Jesus is in a house and it's so full that friends of a paralytic have to tear the roof apart to lower their friend down. And when the paralytic, the man who can't walk, is there in front of Jesus, Jesus says to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now you have to imagine the paralytics lying there, looking up at the ceiling and like, uh, Jesus, do you not kind of get the problem here? I can't walk. Why are you talking about my sins? What's the big deal about that? And many today think this message of Jesus, that he came to save people from their sins, is just as oblivious to the real issues of our life and day. What we need is for our health to get better. I need my relationships to be restored. I need my finances to be improved. We need peace in Israel. We need harmony in our country again. Sin? What an outdated, what an irrelevant idea for the core issues we face. Yet Jesus doesn't think so. And in fact, his lasting cure for all those other real issues that I just mentioned is to first tackle the issue of sin. You see, sin is not just actions like a lie or gossiping or stealing or some other act or attitude. Sin is as the Bible describes it, is our rebellion against God that has brought the curse of God's wrath into the world. It's due to sin that death, disease, broken desires, and relational dysfunction exist. 
Thus, Jesus came to fix all those problems, and to do so, he first must take care of sin. You know, he did this by taking God's wrath on the cross, dying and rising again, conquering sin, death, and the devil. And he promised that those who confess their own sins, admit their brokenness, and trust in him, will have their sins forgiven. And if we do that, we're no longer under God's wrath, but under his love. You know, it's not how many religious deeds have you done. It's not when I stand before God, will I have 50.0001% good deeds and 49.9999 bad, and I just got a little bit more, so I make it to heaven. No, rather, anyone, no matter what they've done, thought or said, can be forgiven and saved due to Jesus. And Jesus knew this was his mission. Because when he came to Zacchaeus, he said, For the Son of Man, referring to himself, came to seek and save the lost. You Have you realized your sin, your lostness, and humbled yourself realizing that you can't fix your own problems? Only Jesus can save, and he came to seek and save lost sinners. And one day, it won't just be the punishment of sin that's removed from us, but also its power and presence. So today, you need more than good health. You need more than better relationships, or increased finances, or a better sense of your worth. You need your sin to be taken care of. And the great news is that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And yet that's not all the angel said, because the angel also said that he's the Savior. I lost my place here. It's right there in verse 2, the Christ, the Lord, I believe it's in 10. Yep. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior. The second thing is described is, is the Christ. Christ means Messiah, the Old Testament idea of anointed one. And God is saying Jesus is the anointed one that he's chosen from all time to bring healing to this world. And that leads to the third description, and that he is Lord. This baby is Lord. Now, Lord means master or ruler, but if you read the Old Testament, only God is called Lord. Thus, Jesus is not just any baby He's God in human flesh. J.I. Packer writes, Jesus was not a God-inspired good man, nor was he a super angel, first and finest of all creatures, called God by courtesy because he's above men. Jesus was and remains God's only son, and as truly and fully God as his father was. Now, this is the marvelous mystery that the immortal God put on mortal flesh. The amazing truth that the voice of God that thunders from the heavens, we're told in the Psalms, now whimpers for food and an embrace. That the invisible God has become visible in the person of Jesus. And the angel informs the shepherds that Jesus came not only to be our Savior from our sin, by being the Messiah, but also to be our Lord you already mentioned Lord means master. And to truly believe in Jesus means that you have him as your master. No longer do you call the shots, but he does. No longer do you do you, but you seek to follow him. You know, sadly, in the United States, many are tragically mistaken 
that I just need to make a profession. I just need to pray a prayer. And yes, you must do that. But there must also be a heart desire to follow Jesus as Lord. Of course, we will all stumble in sin, even once we're saved. And our salvation is not based on our perfection, how well we obey God. Yet a person who claims to know Jesus as Savior, who steadfastly refuses to do what he says, the scripture is clear. That person actually doesn't know Jesus as Savior. As Romans 10, 9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And we can even consider that amazing truth by answering our next question. To whom was he born? Look at verse 10. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day. You know, the good news of great joy is that Jesus is for all people, and thus unto you is born. This baby was born not only to Mary and Joseph. This baby was born for us all. You reflect on that amazing truth. Jesus was born for me. Yes, he came to live and die and rise again for all who trust in him. But that's not like some generic mass of humanity. Jesus knows each of us by name. And he took on flesh and was born for me and for you. Every Christmas present you've ever gotten, or that you may get this year, or that you'll get in the future, is nothing compared to this. Friends, there can be no better Christmas than to truly know Jesus, who came to us in the flesh to be our Savior and Lord. And that really needs to, leads to our next question, why was he born? Now that's kind of a really bizarre question when you think about any other human. Why was I born? Why were you born? Well, some point in the past, a man and a woman had a romantic relationship. That's why we're born. I mean, that, what else is there to say? And yet, we already said Jesus is Lord. He is God. So why did he come to earth? Well, look at verses 13 and 14. Because this time, one angel doesn't let them know, but a host of angels, an army of angels, it tells us. And suddenly there was the, with the angel, to, angel, verse 13, a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he's pleased. Thus the angels declare first that Jesus came to bring glory to God. You know, God made us to see and enjoy his glory. Yet due to Adam and Eve's sin, we lost that ability to be with God. God later, later blessed Israel on Mount Sinai by allowing them to see a glimpse of his glory. And then at the dedication of the tabernacle and then the temple, God's glory came down. Hovered over the Ark of the Covenant in the Shekinah glory in the Holy of Holies. And if you read through the Old Testament in Ezekiel, God says, due to Israel's persistent sin... His glory left the temple. You know, here, this is the first time since Ezekiel when God's glory was taken away that God's glory is said to have come back. God's glory is declaring, I am back to be with my humble, lowly people. 
And then in Luke 9, Jesus will be with three of his disciples on a mountain and God's glory will emanate from him. The glory that he concealed while on earth. You see, Jesus came to restore to us what we once had and that is the ability to be with God and enjoy his glory. Thus, Revelation 21, 23 declares that the city of God has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God where we will be will be its light and its lamp is the Lamb. So Jesus came to reveal and restore God's glory to man. And this glory can be made known with man due to the second reason why Jesus came. And that is he came that on earth there might be peace among those with whom he is pleased. You know, the biblical view of peace, the Old Testament word, shalom, contains more than the idea of I have inner tranquility or that Outside of me, there's no conflict. Shalom refers to completeness, wholeness, being completely the way God intended. Life going well and as it should be. And yet, we all know that this world and even ourselves lack such peace. You may have heard of Isadora Duncan. She was once considered the greatest ballet dancer of that time. She danced before all the royalty of Europe. And yet, she said, I've never been alone that my heart did not ache, my eyes fill with tears, and my hands tremble for a peace and joy that I have never found. Why don't we have peace? And we can give all kinds of answers. We don't have enough money. My relationships are broken. All these things. But why do all those things exist? It's due to our sin and rebellion against God. Not maybe because of a personal sin you committed, but due to the curse of sin in the world. You know, before sin, we had peace with God, with others, with this world. But now, due to sin, we've lost peace with God. We've lost peace with people, and we've lost peace with the created world. Before sin, we walked and talked with God. We're told that we were naked and unashamed before people. Yet, now we hide from God. We quarrel and fight with one another. Not only that, we have conflict even inside ourselves. And then on top of all that, the physical world with which we struggle will overcome us and we will die, returning to dust. Yet the shepherds hear from the angels this wonderful news of great joy that there is peace on earth due to Jesus. As Isaiah prophesied, he is the prince of peace whose reign will grow in peace. And Jesus purchased this peace for us on the cross. Colossians 1, 19 and 20 says, In Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And not just peace with God, but also we can have peace with people. Ephesians 2, 13 and 14 says, In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. They're talking about between people and throughout the life of Jesus. We see him restoring our peace with creation by healing the sick. Raising the dead, calming storms. Thus Jesus, the Prince of Peace, made the way 
for peace with God, man, and the world. And notice again verse 14 though, because verse 14 ends, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Yes, God does provide rain for the just and the unjust, yet his peace only goes to those in whom he has placed his favor. And this favor is not given to those who've done good for God, but rather based on what Christ has done for them. Jesus came to bring glory to God and peace to man. And this all happens when we not only know Jesus, but when we respond to him. Those we close by looking at what was the response to the birth. This is our last section. What was the response to the verse and we to the birth? And we see it in verses 15 through 20. There it reads, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So the shepherds quickly travel to Bethlehem and find the baby in the feeding trough. You know, they don't sit there and deliberate or pontificate. Are angels really real? You know, what are the physics behind this intergalactic angel travel? How'd they get here? You know, they don't debate. Well, which Old Testament prophecies were they talking about? What's the Messiah going to be like? You know, they quickly respond to what they've seen and heard. Then after seeing Jesus, it tells us in verse 17, they go and make known what they've seen and heard. And that leads to the second response in verse 18. And that is people wondering and marveling about these things. Now marveling, wondering, that might seem like a good thing. But it's actually a very dangerous, though common, response. Well, why is that? Well, because as humans, we quickly move from one wonder, one marvel, to the next. Wonder and marvel are short-term. They don't last. Jesus talks of this in Mark 4, where he talks about those who hear God's word, and he says one group immediately receives it with joy. Or you might say with wonder. They're marveling at God's word. And when they have no root in themselves, but endure it for a while, then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Sadly, many people, many people who go to church are this way. Christmas or Easter, they're excited. They wonder if God would come in the flesh. But then life gets difficult. It's so much easier not to follow God and they wander away. They always want what's next, what's more pleasurable, what's more exciting. Well, don't just marvel at the Savior. Commit your life to following Him. Well, there's a third response here, and that's Mary, verse 19, who treasures up all these things, pondering them in her heart. She realized her child was great. But if you read through the rest of Luke's gospel or others, it appears that she hasn't yet fully believed that Jesus is God's son. She doesn't just marvel at the facts and move on, though, like the prior group. Neither does she immediately respond with full trust. Mary is in the middle. She's at a crossroads. So she wisely examines the facts and mulls over them. Yet she still is going to have to respond either with belief or unbelief. And she stands as an example 
in contrast to the people. For she doesn't just end with marveling, but she pauses, reflects, and later <coughs> we'll see she puts her trust in that her own son was the savior of the world. She did what is the last thing reported, and that's what the shepherds did in verse 20. For like the angels had been told them, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard as it had been told them. So if tonight you have to tell a five-year-old what is Christmas all about, could you let them know? Could you let them know the when, where, how, who, and all the other questions? And what about you? How have you responded? Are you like the shepherds who go and see and then rejoice? Are you like the people who wonder, marvel, but then your life moves on to something else? Or are you like Mary, sitting at a crossroads and not sure? You're taking it all in, but you have not yet trusted in Christ. Well, there could be no better Christmas than Christmas 2023 to put your trust in Christ. To wonder and marvel and, as we'll say next, go, tell it on the mountain. Over the hills and everywhere, go, tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord of the world, is born. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing truth that you govern and rule over all. And almost 2,000 years ago, you sent your son into Bethlehem to Mary so that he might be born, that he might live on this earth, and then he might die and rise again. Lord, you know every person in here. Lord, would you work in us not just to wonder and marvel now or wonder and marvel tonight at a Christmas Eve candlelight service. May there be a joy that flows from us because of the Savior who has come. Lord, would you help us to commit our lives to you, trusting in your Son alone for our eternal salvation. It's in his name we pray. Amen.